For Radio Catskill, this is Rosie Starr. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard's Star Talk Report highlights the planet Mercury. Along the Poets Row, Christine San Jose recites Ted Glick's story about a special sheepdog named Molly. Pat and Jim Sanders are for the birds, and they share this farming country segment about snowy owls. From the archive segment, now you know, Stephanie Phillips speaks with Manza family farm owner Tom Manza and employee Martha Howdy. They tell us about a seasonal favorite, Holly. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Giles Snyder. Israeli warplanes are once again bombing Hamas targets inside Gaza, and health experts say the hospital system there is near collapse, unable to help the hundreds of thousands of Palestinian civilians caught up in the conflict. NPR's Brian Mann reports. After the week-long temporary truce collapsed, UNICEF spokesman James Elder posted on social media that the hospital system in Gaza is in crisis. This is the biggest still-functioning hospital in Gaza. It's at 200% capacity. Yes, the health system here is overwhelmed. Before the fighting resumed, NPR spoke with Dr. Mohammed Yasuri at that same hospital in Yunis, who said they were out of supplies and short on medical workers. We are in a catastrophe, disaster. Hospitals are already seeing an influx of dead and wounded from the renewed fighting. The World Health Organization says Gaza is also grappling with a dangerous spike in diseases linked to unsafe drinking water. Brian Mann, NPR News, Tel Aviv. There are signs that talks to renew a pause in fighting are not likely to resume anytime soon. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has recalled Israeli negotiators. A White House official says Vice President Kamala Harris called the Emir of Qatar today after hearing that talks have broken down. Harris is in Dubai where she announced a major investment in helping developing countries combat climate change. NPR's Deepa Shivram is traveling with Harris, who is leading the U.S. delegation at COP28, a major climate summit. It's Harris's first time at the climate summit, and she announced the U.S. will be investing $3 billion in the Green Climate Fund, a United Nations fund that helps developing countries combat the effects of climate change. With ambition and bold action, I know we will build a cleaner, healthier and more prosperous world for this generation and for generations to come. The funding, though, needs approval from Congress first. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News, Dubai. Also in Dubai, the Biden administration announced that it's phasing out coal-fired power plants and is committed to not building any new ones. A special election is yet to be set, but candidates who succeed former New York Republican Congressman George Santos already lining up. Santos was ousted from his congressional seat yesterday. NPR's Eric McDaniel has more. It was looking for a moment like he might make it through this. Top House Republicans, including Speaker Mike Johnson, announced the morning of the vote that they'd support keeping George Santos around. But there were definitely detractors. Fellow New York freshman Anthony D'Esposito, who previously tried to remove Santos, had this to say. We didn't want to spend the first 11 months talking about George Santos, and I hope today is the beginning of not having to talk about him anymore. In the end, the vote was overwhelming more than clearing the two-thirds threshold needed. Santos is set to face trial on 23 federal charges related to financial crimes and his congressional campaign in the coming year. Eric McDaniel, NPR News, The Capitol. And from Washington, you're listening to NPR News. 
Welcome back to Farming Country. I'm your host, Rosie Starr. Today's show features Star Talk about the planet Mercury, a poem about a sheepdog, Molly, bird talk on snowy owls, and redberry bushes called holly. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farming Country. and country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. Mercury will reach its highest point in the evening sky this week. At its peak, Mercury will be only 8 degrees above the horizon at sunset. This will occur Monday evening in the southwestern sky. As the closest planet to the sun, Mercury never strays very far from the sun and is always found low on the horizon around sunrise or sunset. The sun's glare may obscure Mercury for the first 25 minutes after sunset. Even with Mercury shining at a magnitude negative 0.3, the last glow of the setting sun may still be bright enough to prevent us from seeing Mercury. All this week, Mercury will be 7 or 8 degrees above the horizon at sunset. This presents a short 15 to 20 minute window to view Mercury before it dips too low on the horizon this week. The sky should be dark enough to see Mercury starting around 4.50 p.m., and by 5.10 p.m., Mercury may be too low on the horizon to be seen. It will outshine all the stars in that region of the sky, so there will be no mistaking a star for Mercury. Not only is Mercury the closest planet to the Sun, but it is also the smallest planet in the solar system. It is only slightly larger than the Earth's moon, and it is smaller than two moons in our solar system. Jupiter's moon Ganymede and Saturn's moon Titan are both larger than the planet Mercury. Find an unobstructed southwestern horizon and look for Mercury about 25 minutes after sunset this week. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Here is Christine San Jose with a treasure from our Radio Catskill archives. Poet Ted Glick, he sent this poem to his friends, our own, if I may say so, Sonia Headland and Dick Reisling, after visiting them at Apple Pond Farm. You can just see Ted, follow Ted and his friend, go with them on their walk. Ted calls his poem Sheepdog Molly. You're single-minded, Molly, black-and-white sheepdog, companion, adventurer, well-trained animal, friend. Whether in-house or out, you want a person to throw something, anything, a stick, small or large, a ball, a pine cone, a little piece of wood, a little something else, so you can go get it over and over and over. This afternoon, we took a walk here at your home, Apple Pond Farm in the Catskill Mountains, New York. And all the way, from the house to the barn, from the barn around the gate, 
to the big, open, sloping hill next to the enclosed field, enclosing 25 or so sheep. From the bottom to the top, a longish uphill walk, watching the three horses across the field from our path as they watched us. From the shaded top to the adjacent field, across the broken-down stone wall, broken-down barbed wire fence, we crossed a bunch, four or five maybe, from beginning to end, from the adjacent open grassy field to the field chest-high with weeds, down the hill, heading back towards home, but with obstacles. Twice, Molly, I was concerned you were wounded by the barbs of the barbed wire. But you never stopped, never stopped wagging your tail, never stopped finding sticks and big branches, bringing them to me to throw, kneeling down, looking at me with shining eyes, which said, Do it, do it now. <laughs> but if I didn't, you patiently waited, moving with me as I looked for a safe path through the chest-high weeds, with occasional barbs, through the little travelled woods, with rocks and roots and fallen trees to constantly navigate as we kept moving down the hill, sloping at first and then steep, me holding on to trees and rocks in case I lost my footing, adventuring, 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 crossing the barely moving stream, and I look over to see you stretched out happily in a pool of water, your underside soaking it in, and you loving it. Up the steep hill on the other side, the house in sight, around a back way, past Scott and Desmond, you with a monster stick, I keep throwing, and you keep returning, until we step back inside. I find a towel, I dry you off, as you patiently stand, so I can do so. <laughs> Molly, I will miss you when I return to New Jersey later this evening. You are truly this man's best friend today and when I visit in the future. Speed the day. <laughs> what a dog, what a friend. Well, who doesn't love a sheepdog? A black and white border collie. The village I go to in Cornwall is in the heart of sheep country. And I often see the Tregirls Farm sheepdog herding his flock out of a well-nibble field and into a juicier one. And have you ever seen sheepdog trials? They're amazing. Oh, those intelligent dogs. The precision which they followed the shepherd's whistled commands. Well... I wish you happy memories. This has been Christine San Jose along the Poets Row for Farm and Country. Good morning. This is Jim and Pat Sanders for Farm and Country, and our program is For the Birds. Snowy owls spend summers far north of the Arctic Circle hunting lemmings, ptarmigan, and other prey in the 24-hour daylight. In years of lemming population booms, they can raise double or even triple their usual number of young. In some years, some North American snowy owls remain on their breeding grounds year-round, while others migrate in winter to southern Canada and the northern half of the contiguous United States. In the northern plains, New York and New England, snowy owls occur regularly in winter. 
Elsewhere, such as our area, snowy owls are eruptive, appearing only in some winters, but not in others. Snowy owls are white birds with varying amounts of black or brown markings on the body and wings. On females, this can be quite dense, giving the bird a salt and pepper look. Males tend to be paler and become whiter as they age. Their eyes are yellow. They're very large owls with smoothly rounded heads and no ear tufts. The body is bulky with dense feathering on the legs that makes the bird look wide at the base when sitting on the ground. Thick feathers for insulation from Arctic cold make snowy owls North America's heaviest owl, weighing about four pounds, one pound heavier than even a great horned owl. When I see a picture of a snowy owl, it practically takes my breath away. They are so stunning. Where should you look for one of these massive, charismatic white owls? Unless you visit the high Arctic, you'll mainly be looking for snowy owls during winter in wide open areas such as fields and shorelines. Snowy owls like to perch in conspicuous areas, so be sure to check high points like hay bales, fence posts, telephone poles, buildings, or even grain elevators. When they fly, they usually stay close to the ground. They also do a lot of sitting. They sit still in the same spot for hours, occasionally swiveling their head or leaning forward and blinking their big yellow eyes to get a closer look at something. When they hunt, they use extraordinary vision and hearing to draw a bead on their prey, maybe a vole scurrying beneath the snow, and then fly or even run over to pounce on it. If successful, they'll down the rodent head first in a single gulp. What would cause eruptions of snowy owls? It had been thought that the birds that were coming further south than normal were starving to death and coming south due to crashes in the lemming population in the Arctic. But scientists say that this old theory about why there are eruptions of snowy owls is wrong. New thinking is that an abundance of lemmings prompts breeding, bigger clutches of eggs, and lots of snowy owl offspring. The young birds have to venture further south to find food as they disperse from their home territories at the end of the breeding season. If you're out looking for snowy owls, please take care if you should encounter any of these owls and avoid the temptation to to get too close at the risk of stressing the owl. So keep on the lookout as you travel around the roads this winter. You might just happen to spot one of these unforgettable birds. We hope you've enjoyed this week's segment. This has been Pat and Jim Sanders of the Northeast Pennsylvania Audubon Society, and we're For the Birds. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. I took a ride to the Manza Family Farm in Montgomery to find out what I could about one of the colorful symbols of the season. Tom Manza, who's the owner of the Manza Family Farm, is going to talk to us about holly today. Martha Howdy is going to help us with the decorating part of it. My name is Tom Manza and I've been at Manza Family Farm since 1979, and we've been a nursery selling trees and shrubs and Christmas trees. It sounds like you started as a farm, though. Yes, we've pretty much evolved. We've had everything from vegetable growing to strawberries to apple picking. We boarded horses for quite a while, and we sold hay and grain to other area stables. 
And uh, at this point, we're mainly a tree and shrub nursery. We sell Christmas trees, and we have a pumpkin patch that does hay rides and fall activities. I imagine you'll be seeing a lot of our listeners out here once they buy their trees. Martha, can you tell us something about yourself? Well, I've been at Manza Farm selling trees and shrubs for years now. Can you tell our listeners where the farm is located? We're on Route 211 in Montgomery. It's about midway between the Galleria Mall in Middletown and Montgomery, right on that stretch of Route 211. Tom, given the season, let's talk about holly. Can you tell us the scientific name, how many species there are, the range, what kinds grow around here? There are many different species. Unfortunately, in Sullivan County, not a lot of them will make through the winters, so very limited. Some of the best species for Sullivan County are the Blue Princess and Blue Prince Hollies, China Girl and China Boy, and the China Hollies, and they're pretty much it. There are other ones that will make it up there, some of the Japanese hollies and American holly, but they have to be put in a very protected spot and probably get a good root system before the winter. Hey, I've got the blue princess. I have two of them, a male and a female one. And they do have those pointy leaves. Why do you think that they're so popular for Christmas decorations? I think they're very popular because of the berries and the look of them and it's very vibrant colors and I think that's what makes it popular. The leaves are nice too. Martha, what would you use them for in decorating? Well, you could use the dried branches. You can snip them off the bush and hang them upside down for a few weeks and they'll dry real nicely and keep well in a dried arrangement. Or if you want to add them to water, I've seen them dunked in glass canisters as a centerpiece or just used in a vase with some water they'll keep for a very long time and you could also spray them with a like a desiccant spray which will keep their luster even longer but they stay for a good long time for a decoration inside even if they're not in water they stay right especially if you dry them first if you don't put them in water and you keep them inside they'll still stay for a couple of weeks. But if you want to keep them longer, you would air dry them first. Either way, you could bring them in and use them in a pinch for your table or your mantle or a wreath. When you say air dry, you just hang them on a string or something? Right. If you cut them clean with a, a good sharp shear and you remove the bottom six inches of leaves from the branches and then hang those branches upside down tied to a string, maybe four or five branches at a time, and hang them in a cool, dark place, they will dry for you very nicely that way. Maybe three weeks drying. Great. Tommy mentioned several varieties. The hollies that I've all recommended are Chinese hollies. I look reserve, I believe you pronounce it that way. That seems to be the only ones that are hardy. Again, the Japanese hollies and the native hollies are hardier down south in areas from, I would say, New York City on south of there. I admit to being a biologist, so I'll tell you that the species are the ones that you can cross easily, one with the other. To make cultivars. (laughs) Right, so it's Ilex is a genus. The Japanese hollies are the other hollies, which we sell them because they do make it down here in Orange County, but up in Sullivan County they're very touchy. They're more of a zone six plant, and uh, I wouldn't recommend anything in Sullivan unless it was at least a zone five plant. And what zone are we in? In Sullivan County, I believe it's a, maybe a 5, and down here, I believe it's a 5A or a 6. Uh, they you're a little less elevation down here. 
Yeah, a little less elevation. They did change the zones about three or four years ago with the global warming, so-called. But it, we've had some winters where we've had, of course, some bitter temperatures, so you could probably throw that out the window. If you want to grow holly bushes yourself, what's a good time of year to plant them? I would say the best time to plant hollies is in either early fall or early spring. They really need a good root system before the winter time. It's a little late to put them in at this time, although many other things do take very well. But hollies need a good root system. They dehydrate too much, if they're, especially in a windy condition, if they're put in at a time of the year when they don't have a chance to root. Because they keep their leaves all winter. Exactly. And we recommend putting wilt-proof on them anyway before the winter. I think it's a good idea to put a wilt-proof to coat the leaves to protect them from the winds and to plant them on a side of the house that they're a little bit protected. Ours are pretty protected by a covering of snow. (laughs) (laughs) What conditions do they need? Sun? Shade? Do they mind the wind? They could take part sun. I think part sun is probably optimal conditions. They can grow in the full sun, but in the heat of summer, if they're planted a little late, they might dehydrate. Again, anything with leaves, whether it be hollies or rhododendrons, they dehydrate more than other plants because they have so much leaf cover. I would say the best conditions are part sun. And what kind of soil do they like? What kind of fertilizer should you use? They like a uh, slightly acid fertilizer and a little bit of a medium pH. They don't like too acidy, but a medium pH and a little bit of fertilizer is always a good thing. Peat moss mixed in with the soil because they like a little bit of drainage. So they mix in well with the azaleas. Oh, yeah. Yep. And I was thinking, don't forget about deciduous holly. It grows real well around here, and it mm-hmm. has a very, very showy berry production. Mm-hmm. So deciduous holly, mm-hmm. I think particulata, mm-hmm. is another good source of decorating for sure. More berries than some of the evergreens. I like them because the leaf color is so different from the azaleas. It makes a nice contrast. You mean the deciduous? The the, 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 uh, English evergreens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice, deep, dark green. And it does make a great background because they usually get a lot taller. You know, they'll grow taller. They're a good background for a lot of perennials. Tom, how big do they get? And how long does it take them to get there? Well, the deciduous holly, like Martha's pointing out, can get a little bit of size, so I believe they get about six foot, right, mm-hmm. Martha? Yeah. And the evergreen hollies can get a little bit tall as well. Most people will a lot of times shear them into a hedge if they like, but uh, otherwise they can get a, a little bit of size to them somewhere in the five, six foot range. Some of the hollies don't have those pointy leaves. They have little the Japanese oval-shaped yeah. leaves, and I had one that was like 12 feet high. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the steeds and the other Japanese hollies can get quite tall. The steeds are one of the hardier varieties of Japanese holly that probably would make it fine in Sullivan County with the right conditions. They are an upright holly, and there are other ones that are upright, and they can get quite tall. When I originally bought my hollies, I was told I had to buy two of them, a male and a female. Can you explain that? Yeah, they need to cross-pollinate. The bees will pollinate the flowers from the male holly to the female, that's what, how they, they pollinate. So really the optimal to be within 50 to 100 feet, of the, you'd need a male and a female holly of the same species recommended. It's, it's best to have the same if possible. And if one male will pollinate 6 to 10 females. So even if your neighborhood has holly, you may still get berries on your female holly because there's a holly down the street or across the... Wait, because they can be at a distance. They don't have to be right next to each other. And it's the females that has the berries, right? Correct. 
Are the holly subject to pests? Do they get diseases? They're a pretty clean plant, and relatively speaking, we haven't had many problems with hollies. There's been other plants that over the last couple of years have had some difficulties, but the hollies seem to be one of those that's been immune to a lot of the common problems other plants have. You mentioned that they can be in hedges. How should they be pruned? The hollies can be pruned really drastically. If you want a real low hedge, that's okay. They take to shearing and intense pruning or let to grow tall. They could just be trimmed to the height that you want your hedge to be. But I've seen them used in topiaries and in little formal box gardens where they are clipped at 12 inches. So they take to shearing very well, as long as you do it with clean tools. The branches get very thick. Sure. And, I mean, if you're going to keep a low hedge, the branches will get thick, but there'll always be nice, fresh foliage on the edges, in the tips. Tom, can you root hollies from cuttings? I believe you can root hollies from cuttings. We have never done that. We're not into the production end of growing them. A friend of ours does do quite a bit of cuttings. They have to miss the leaves, though. They have to be under almost the constant moisture on the tops of them. You think that's how they propagate them, or are they from seeds? I believe that's how they propagate the hollies, that they do cuttings. They, they dip them in rooting hormone, and they put them in closed areas, green, greenhouse settings, where they put misters on them so that they keep hydrated until they do root. Martha, I looked up how you make wreaths, holly, holly wreaths, mm-hmm. online, and they seem to recommend adding sprigs of other plants, and they mention laurel, ivy, crab apple, something called, I don't know, cupressus, mm-hmm. and yes. other... Cypress, that's cypress. Any evergreen mixes beautifully with holly branches. Uh, you could go out in your yard and collect any number of evergreens or boxwood. There's so many ways you could go with a wreath and holly. Holly could be just used as an accent. Or if you have enough, you can make the entire wreath out of a holly by cleaning the branches and wiring them with florist wire to a round form. And you can buy those forms at a nursery? Yeah, well, a garden supply, you could get them in a a large store with a garden supply center. We don't carry too many floral arrangement items here, but certainly they're easy to find. It's Home Depot again. Could be. Even Target, you know, there's so many big stores now that have nice garden center departments for that sort of thing. (laughs) Lastly, what kind of a plant is mistletoe? Because that's the other plant that people use around Christmas time. The mistletoe would be considered a parasite plant, which doesn't root to the ground, but it finds its way somehow in the branches of trees and prospers as sort of like a, it looks like a witch's broom or something. It's a cluster that grows high in in the trees. I don't know if it grows on the East Coast but I saw a lot of it on the West Coast. So, thanks to Tom Manza and Martha Howdy, now you know how you can deck the halls with your very own holly. If there are other topics that you'd like to know about, email me at stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, at wjffradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. Happy holidays, everyone. I hope everybody has a happy and healthy holiday season. Happy holidays. Celestial greetings. I'm Keith Hubbard, writer and producer of Star Talk for Farm and Country. 
Thank you for listening to us, supporting us, and truly making WJFF your community radio station. Have a safe and festive holiday season and a happy new year. We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to Jim and Pat Sanders for their Northeast Audubon Society report on snowy owls. And to our guests, Tom Manza and Martha Howdy from the Manza Family Farm in Montgomery, New York. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill. Public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Listen on air at 90.5 FM on your phone or smart speaker or online at WJFFradio.org. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Peter Knight, the ponytailed fiddle player in Steel Ice Band for decades, now has his own band, Gig Spanner. Next time on the Waggalota Monkeys with me, Graham Rice, here on Radio Catskill, we hear both the large and the small versions of the band, plus the fine individual musicians who make it all work. Peter Knight's Gig Spanner on Sunday afternoon at 3. Hi, it's Callison Stratton from Liberation Station.